How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a couple of moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to be in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to fellowship together around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the revelation that you have given us, for its clarity and its lucidity and its understandability, that you have also given us the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand these things and to assimilate them into our thinking that we might be able to use them in our own spiritual growth, spiritual advance. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Genesis 12. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 12. And we stud- last time we looked at this and did an overview of how God was shifting the dispensation. There is a major shift taking place in Genesis 12.1 because of what had happened earlier in Genesis 11. We can't separate Genesis 12, 1 through 3 from the context of the deterioration and decline into cosmic thinking as exemplified in the Tower of Babel incident. Because the entire human race had deteriorated in these ten generations since the flood, God has now going to intervene in history in a different way from the way he did at the flood. Remember, there were ten generations from Adam to Noah. And with Noah and Noah's generation, he brought a judgment on the earth. While having promised not to destroy the earth again by means of water, and because the problem is now different. Remember, the problem before was the genetic infiltration of the sons of God, the fallen angels, cohabiting with the human human women and producing a half-breed offspring. The problem now is just pure cosmic thinking. It's paganism, and it's, it's affecting everything. And we just see elements of it in our own culture and the deterioration in the culture in the United States over the last uh, 200 years. And that's not to say that things were perfect, and people always have a tendency to look back on some previous time as an ideal period, things were not necessarily perfect in the colonial period or even in the federal period, but things were better. There was much a much greater influence of Bible doctrine on the thinking of even unbelievers. And today we live in a, much, uh, in a civilization where the vast majority of Christians think like a pagan. And they don't even know it because they're swimming around in a sea of paganism all day. And they go home 
and they don't go to Bible class. They don't have their thinking overhauled by the teaching of the Word. And so they just pick up a few stock religious phrases. They go to church and sing a bunch of, of uh, praise choruses on Sunday, hear a sermonette for Christianettes, and clean up their life morally and think they're going somewhere. And they're not going anywhere because they're still approaching Christianity from a pagan viewpoint. So we have lost, the salt has lost its savor, to speak biblically. We're no longer having the impact we once had. And there needs to be something radical done today, just as there was something radical done in 2000 B.C. And what did God do? Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Avram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Here we see that it is uh, God indicated in, by the nomenclature Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that the Jews would associate with the Mosaic Covenant. So when they read that, they're saying this is the same God that spoke to Abram, that spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. This relates, of course, to the founding of the Jewish people. And he says to Abram, so God speaks to Abram. Actually, this is a cow, uh, cow perfect verb, yomer, from the verb amar. It's a cow imperfect, and actually, and it has the, it has a sense of, now the Lord had said to Abram. And it's talking about a time previous to the, the death of Terah. See, the previous verses, verses 20, uh, chapter 11, verses 27 to, 20 to 32, we get a summation of what's happened with uh, Avram and his family. They've been down in Ur of the Chaldees, and sometime when he was around 50 to 60 years of age, they packed their bags and they moved up to Haran. And they stayed there until... His father Terah died. At that time, Avram was 75 years old. And then he left there to go on to Canaan. But what caused them to move out of Ur of the Chaldees was this uh, mandate in verse that's given in chapter 12, 1 through 3. This explains why he moved. He was already a believer. Uh, we don't know for sure from Scripture, but the indications are that he had become a believer sometime earlier in his life. Jewish legend, non-biblical tradition, indicates that he was a believer from an early age and that he had strong positive volition. And that is supported, even though it's not indicated per se in the Scriptures, it's supported by passages such as Hebrews 11.8 and Acts 7, which talk about the fact that despite his family is enmeshed in the uh, pagan astrological fertility worship of the Babylonians, uh, Avram has enough faith that when God says get out, he gets out. So he is responding to God, and this is an indication that he has some knowledge of doctrine. And uh, we won't go there just yet, but if you were to, we were to take the time, we'll conclude with it. We were to take the time to look at Hebrews 11.8. What we discover is that when Avram leaves Ur the Chaldees, he understands that there is an inheritance set before him. Now, we speak of that as having a, sense, a personal sense of his eternal destiny. 
He knew that there was not a physical piece of land that he would probably occupy in his lifetime. But he knew that eventually this would be his. So he is making decisions in the, pre- in the present time of his life based on what will happen in eternity future. That indicates a level of spiritual maturity. He's at least reached spiritual adolescence by this time. So God appears to him. And in this passage, we have what is called the call of Abraham. And it is not the call of, the call of Abraham or the response to this call is not salvific. This is not related to salvation. When Abraham responds, that's not the basis for being saved. He's already saved. He's already been justified. We have the same kind of verb construction over in Hebrews 15, I mean, uh, Genesis 15, 7, where it talks about the fact that Abraham had believed God and it was already accounted to him for righteousness. And it's referring back to his salvation, which occurred at some unknown time prior to this call to get out of his country. Because he was already saved, this is seen as an award, a a contingent blessing distributed to Abraham in time. It is an award. And the pattern for the Abrahamic covenant, as we will see when we get into it in, in our study, was based on a type of contract or covenant or peace treaty given in the ancient Near East called a... Somebody's got their cell phone on. (laughs) <laughs> that's okay we're we're in that uh uh that age so anyhow it's called a royal grant treaty and a royal grant treaty was was a where a piece of land or territory real estate some sort of property was given by a sovereign or king to an obedient and loyal servant and it is given unconditionally as a result of something they have already done. So the indication is that Avram has been faithful to God, living in the midst of this rank paganism in Ur of the Chaldees, and God, for his own reasons and his own purposes, decides to grant this gift to Avram. And he is going to now work in a unique way in history. He's no longer going to work with all of mankind. He's no longer going to work universally through the entire human race. Now he is going to limit himself to working through one individual and his descendants. Now the context of this mandate is the context of the paganism of the Tower of Babel. This has been probably 200 years since the Tower of Babel, but remember most of those folks lived... Uh, to be four or five hundred years at least at this time, many overlapping generations, and that kind of thinking has now matured and is dominating the culture of Ur the Chaldees. So God has to, in order to accomplish his purposes, he is going to call out Abram from the midst of this culture because he knows that if Abram stays where he is, God can't accomplish through Abram what he wants to accomplish through Abram. So he gives him a command. And that command begins with a very famous phrase in the Hebrew, Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha. The first Lech is the Cal imperative. Looks like this. Here we have Lech and then Lecha. The first Lech 
is from the Hebrew verb halak. They drop that initial uh, hey in the imperative, and you just pick up the second syllable. So that's your cal imperative, uh, second person, masculine singular. And the lamed preposition, get out yourself, uh, with a second person masculine singular suffix, L-E-K-A, indicates a, a redundancy for emphasis. You get yourself out, or you go out from. And the out from comes from the preposition men in the Hebrew, M-I-N, which is attached as a prefix to each of the following phrases, so that it is from your country, ma'aretz, from the Hebrew word aretz, meaning land or country. You have that initial M is that this preposition men drops the N in assimilation from your country and Memoladatka, Memoladatka, uh, which is from your relatives or from your family, and Mabayat or Mabait Avika, from the house of your family. So you have a threefold repetition of this preposition which, which emphasizes separation. He is to get out. He is to remove himself from the influence of the country that he's in, from even his close family and relatives, and from his the house of his father. Now, the interesting thing is that Avram responds to this just like you and I respond to God's commands most of the time, with partial obedience. Because we just don't have the maturity often to fully trust God. And so we see this response on Abram's part that's in stages. He leaves his country and he goes to Haran, but he takes his dad with him and he takes his nephew Lot with him. And what we're going to see in the next few chapters is that God has to work with Abraham where he is, just like he works with you and me in our own spiritual life where we are, that's called the grace of God, to finally cause this separation. And it happens because his, his father dies, finally, after 10 or 15 years. And then Abram and Lot go down to Canaan. And then in the next chapter, uh, it's going to be obvious that there is a conflict of interest between Lot and his servants, the folks who work for him. They're both extremely wealthy men, so they have several hundred servants that work for each of them. They get into a jealousy and an inordinate competition and now it's necessary for them to separate. And Lot, of course, chooses the beautiful city of the cities of the valley as his habitation. So God, it, it's going to take God about ten years of working with Abram, Abram to get him to finally separate himself from these uh, negative influences, so that he can be in a position where he is exclusively trusting God, and he is operating on faith. But he's not being completely obedient. And it's, I'm not trying to be hard on Abram, but the comparison is that we're the same way. Growth comes incrementally. You don't just jump into full-fledged 
uh, spiritual obedience, and often we obey God uh, in one way one day, the next day we back up. It's sort of a case of three steps forward and two steps back, although for some of us it's two steps forward and three steps back, and we wonder if we're ever making any advance. But that's where the grace of God comes in. As long as we're alive, God still has a plan for our life, and God always supplies the resources. Now, what's going on here in the advance of God's plan for the human race is that he is faced, as it were, speaking anthropologically, God's faced with a rebellious human race. And everyone is in rebellion against him, and the only one that is obedient to him, or maybe not the only one, but one of the few that is still obedient to him, is Abram. And so God is going to choose to work through Abram in order to bless the rest of humanity. He is going to choose out Abram and his descendants to function as a counterculture and sort of a fifth column within the kingdom that Satan is establishing on the earth. Through cosmic thinking, Satan has foisted his pseudo-religions, all of the fertility religions and idolatrous systems, the religions of Egypt, uh, the religions of Mesopotamia, the religions of the Hittites, all of the, the idolatrous systems are dominating the thinking of man. Man, is, as we've studied, has followed the procedures of Romans chapter 1, and they have exchanged the worship of the, of the Creator for the worship of the creature. And this, as we saw, is a solidification of cosmic thinking from the Tower of Babel. Now, the core, the root of cosmic thinking is human arrogance. You have two things operational as a result of human arrogance. So we'll put arrogance up here at the top. And arrogance operates in two directions. first area is in terms of man's own autonomy. We are declaring our independence from God, that we don't need God. We can manage just fine. Thank you very much. We don't need anybody coming along and flooding everything anymore and destroying and mucking up our lives. And on the other hand, there is an antagonism to God. These are the two elements of arrogance. There's an antagonism, a hostility, an enmity toward God. But what operates cyclically within this is arrogance, and I've taught in the past there are five arrogant skills. I'm adding another one. So we're going to start with the first one, and this is self-reliance. That's at the very core of autonomy, is self-reliance. Now, I don't mean self-reliance in the, in the sense that you need to depend, you, know, you, you can rely upon your own abilities that God's given you and that sort of thing. I mean self-reliance as opposed to dependence on God, the faith rest drill. This is why it's so hard for people to exercise the faith rest drill. Is the faith rest drill calls upon us to completely rely upon God to supply all of our needs and to trust in Him and to rest and relax. But at the very core of arrogance is self-reliance that somehow I'm going to provide uh, stability and tranquility and contentment for myself. If I don't do it, nobody else will, including God. So this is where things start, is this element in our thinking of self-reliance, autonomy. That leads to the second skill we're familiar with, which is self, self-absorption. 
we focus on ourselves. We're at the, the self, self, self. Our own well-being is at the heart of everything. The more we're absorbed with ourselves, the more we become self-indulgent. And we give in to ourselves. We give in to the lust patterns of the sin nature. Uh, this leads, the more self-indulgent, me, self-indulgent we are, the more self-deceived we are. So the fourth arrogant skill is self-deception. The more we deceive ourselves, the more we justify. So we have self-justification. I think I have these reversed. We go from self-justification, justify that self-indulgence. Fourth is self-justification. Fifth is self-deception. Now we are living divorced from reality. We can't understand the way things are, why things are going the way they are, because we have created an entire construct to explain life that is not based on Bible doctrine or spiritual dynamics. So we're operating in our own little bubble of self-deception, and at the core of self-deception now, we have substituted our own lusts and desires for God, and we are worshiping ourselves, and we're into self-deification. Self-deification, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. This is the environment in which Abram is operating. It's no different from the environment in which we operate. It's only exaggerated to a much higher extent. And so God says that if he's going to accomplish in human history what he wants to, he has got to get Abram out. And this leads to a very important doctrine that is found throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, and it is the doctrine of separation. The doctrine of separation. God has called us to be separate. Now, let's start off with point one, which is simply a definition. Separation begins with a mental attitude that results in removing from our lives elements and people that are either distractions or may become distractions in our own spiritual advance. Let me say that again. Separation begins with a mental attitude. That's important. It begins with your thinking. That means Bible doctrine in the soul. It is not an external thing. This is a trap that so many fundies get into, is they immediately think of separation in terms of some sort of external thing, and they say, well, you shouldn't go to movies, and you shouldn't dance, and you shouldn't go down to the local bar. Of course, you know, Jesus uh, rubbed shoulders with the prostitutes and the, and the drunks and the wine-bibbers because he was witnessing to them. So if you separate yourself too much from the world... There's nobody for you to witness to. And see, this is a problem that you get as you create these little Christian enclaves called megachurches. And they uh, build their uh, bowling alleys, and they have their women's aerobics classes, and they, cre- they put gyms in there. And you can go to some of these churches, and as, a, as an individual member of that church, you have access to everything. I, I know of some of these churches that even have Starbucks in them. They have Starbucks and they have Wi-Fi. For those of you who aren't up to date, that's wireless. So you can go in there and sit down and have your cup of coffee and get on a uh, a control a, a, a 
wireless network that has parental controls so that you won't go any place where you you shouldn't and every and you're just living in a little bubble and after you get through having your morning coffee you can go to your aerobics class and then you can work out or you can play uh uh tennis or you can go swimming or go bowling have your little ladies bible class in the morning your kids are going to the church school so everything is done in this little bubble and about six months after you end up going to this church, you don't know or have contact with a single unbeliever that you can witness to. And you're no longer in the world. You've just divorced yourself from everything. That's not biblical at all. And yet that seems to be the dynamic because Christians are afraid to be in the world because they're, they're afraid of their own sin nature. What they want to do is instead of applying doctrine and behaving responsibly in the midst of the world, they want to just build uh, a monastery and go live in it so they don't have to deal with their own uh, temptation or lust of the flesh. That's because they're not learning doctrine, they're not applying doctrine, they don't understand spiritual dynamics. So when we talk about separation, we're not talking about physical separation like the fundies. We're not talking about doing away with... uh, uh, everybody in your life that's not walking around on a on a pietistic cloud. We have to understand what the Bible means by separation. So let's go to point two. Separation then begins in the believer's personal life as he learns and applies doctrine in the direction of his own sin nature. It starts in our personal life as we study the Word and you're taking notes. A good way to take notes is to take them in the first person. When I state a principle, you ought to write it down in terms of what I need to do, you know, in terms of yourself, how that relates to application. So separation begins in the believer's personal life as he applies doctrine toward his own sin nature. You see, the Bible says you start, separation starts, in relation to the sin nature, Romans 6:11. Likewise, you also reckon, which means to consider or think in terms of the reality of doctrine, consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now remember, death in Scripture doesn't mean the cessation of existence. It means separation from. When Adam died spiritually, he was separated from God. When we die physically, our soul is separated from our body. Death is separation. So consider yourselves to be separated indeed from sin. Let's translate it that way, a little paraphrase. Consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the idea. We are to be separated from sin. In Romans 8.13, Paul puts it this way, For if you live according to the flesh, that's the sin nature, you will die. Now, that is not talking about physical death. It is not talking even about spiritual death. It's talking about carnal death. It's talking about the fact that if you're a believer and you're living and operating in carnality, then the all of the blessings of the abundant Christian life are not yours. You're going to go, even though you have eternal life, you might as well be dead and you're living in carnal death. And the contrast is that if by means of the Spirit, that is by walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, uh, you will live. So what are we supposed to do? We're to put to death the deeds of the body. 
that is a calling for separation in the believer's life from sin. Now, does that mean that you run around always in self-flagellation every time you sin? No, that's why we have 1 John 1, 9. You have to learn to have a relaxed mental attitude toward your own sin. Uh, don't get all wrapped around the axle over guilt because you continue to commit certain sins or have certain mental attitude lust patterns or anything else. On the one hand, you don't want to excuse it. That's licentiousness, and we always have to watch out for that when we teach grace. Grace doesn't mean you excuse and rationalize your sin or anybody else's sin. Sin is sin, you have to recognize it for what it is, but in our own personal life, God has given us the, the uh, grace recovery procedure of 1 John 1.9. If we admit or acknowledge our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are consequences, though. There are consequences to our own personal spiritual growth. There's missed opportunity. There are missed blessings. There's missed privileges. But we have recovery. We may have to go through a period, short period, or even a long period of divine discipline due to our uh, sinfulness. But don't make the mistake of slipping over into licentiousness. I think that's always typical of young baby believers. And they slip over that way. And the danger there is you set a pattern. And that pattern is one where you wink at sin. You no longer take it seriously, and it's sort of like a landmine in your own spiritual life because suddenly when you're in spiritual adolescence or spiritual maturity, you still have this element of licentious rationalization going on in your soul, and all of a sudden you get into those areas of sin where you're easily tempted, and next thing you know this landmine goes off and you're in in deep trouble. So we are to put to death the deeds of the body. And the result is we will live, that is, we will experience the abundant life. So separation begins first and foremost in your individual spiritual life. And it takes place as a result of learning Bible doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit and applying it in relationship to your own sin nature. Then the third point. See, we work out in, in concentric circles. It starts with your own personal life your own sin nature. Third point, separation then involves separating from human viewpoint thinking. It's not just the sin nature that's influencing your life, but also all that human viewpoint garbage that's floating around in your soul. The stuff you learn from your, from your mother's knee, the stuff you learn from your favorite teachers in school, stuff you picked up from all that peer pressure that you said really didn't influence you when you were growing up, all of those different ideas need to be excised by the uh, scalpel of the Word of God. And it need, you need to get that stuff flushed out of your system. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, the mercies of God is a reference to grace in action. It starts with understanding grace. Because of God's grace, because we understand all that He has done for us, then our response is to present our bodies. What are we supposed to do just in back in Romans 8.13? See, Paul goes through, after Romans 8, Paul takes this little diversion in Romans 9, 10, and 11 where he's dealing with how God 
is justified in setting aside temporarily the Jews. And then he comes right back to his topic. Well, in Romans 8.13, he's saying, uh, if by the Spirit you put to death the what? The deeds of the body. And then when we get into Romans 12.1, we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. See, there's an order here. You can't put to death the the uh, you can't present your bodies a living sacrifice unless you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the sin nature, and that happens twofold in two ways. Number one, you've got confession of sin, and number two, it's when you're then walking by the Spirit and you have a temptation to sin, you say no, and you apply doctrine, you claim promises, and if you don't say no, then you immediately realize, well, I blew it that time, I've got another chance, I'll confess my sin, and you move on. And you keep going forward, recognizing the principle is to stay in fellowship, walk by the Spirit, abiding in Christ. So in Romans 12.1, we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy. Holy means set apart. That means that this is practical uh, or experiential righteousness. It is not positional sanctification. It is experiential sanctification, advancing in our spiritual life. Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. That is, don't let your thinking be conformed to cosmic thinking. Flush that human viewpoint garbage out and be transformed by the renovation of your thinking. And the word there for mind is phreneo, and that means your thought systems, not just the individual items in your thinking, See, this isn't saying that if you have a problem with mental attitude sin and you have jealous thoughts, then now what you need to do is quit having jealous thoughts. It's talking about the fact that you need to quit thinking like a pagan. You know, it, it, if you go in there and you uh, get rid of certain thoughts and replace them with biblical thoughts, that's good. But see, if the structure of the house is still humanistic, rationalistic, evolutionary thought, mystical, emotional, religious thought, it's not going to do you any good. Because you, you, instead of changing the house, you just decided that you're going to paint the kitchen blue instead of that crummy wallpaper that's been up there for a while. And it's going to look nice, but the house is falling down. See, we have to overhaul our, our whole thinking. So be transformed by the renovation of your thinking that you may prove. And that's that word... Uh, Mazo again. It's a uh, present active, imper- uh, excuse me, present active infinitive here, and it indicates uh, demonstration of something that you may demonstrate. See, this is what happens as we advance spiritually, and we're renovating our thinking and applying doctrine. The Holy Spirit is changing us from the inside out. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ in our life, and it demonstrates that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. And we become a living, walking testimony of the grace of God in the angelic conflict. And so this calls for a separation from human viewpoint thinking. So the, the first two categories of separation have to do with what's going on between your ears. They don't have to do with what's going on necessarily in the world around you. Although, if the world around you is presenting temptations where you easily succumb to sin, then that means that you have to make some choices about where you go or who you associate with or the things you do 
recognizing that if you easily, your environments that easily lead you to sin, then you need to change your environment. If you're with people who easily lead you to sin, then you need to change your friends because you need to recognize that, that God is in control. God is working in your life to create something different and you need to separate from certain types of people. So that's the fourth point. We're commanded to separate from certain kinds of uh, carnal believers, backslidden, reversionistic believers, because there are certain types of carnality that are contagious. There are certain types of carnality that easily runs through a local church. You get people who get into gossip or slander, and this can run through a church. Next thing you know, everybody's talking about something, and nobody knows what it is they actually, they're actually talking about. But we have a passage that specifically deals with some of these sins. This is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list. These kinds of things. This is found in 1 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11. Let's uh, take a little time to exegete our way through the verses. Paul says, well, let's just turn there. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5, and let's pick up a little bit of the context. 1 Corinthians 5, just pick up a little bit of the context. The situation here, of course, was the problem with uh, one member in the congregation of Corinth who was uh, shacked up with his stepmother. His father's dead, and he's living with his stepmother. Now, in our society, there's no blood relationship there, and so there's not a, a, a cultural taboo on that. But apparently in Corinth, that was considered an extreme example of perversion. Now remember, we're talking about the Corinthians here, folks. We're talking about uh, a city that is a port city in the ancient world where there's all kinds of sexual perversion going on. You have all kinds of people coming from different cultures. You have uh, uh, the sailors coming through. You have all kinds of fertility religions going on where people are going up into the sacred groves and the high places and having... Uh, sex with the temple prostitutes. All of this is pretty normative. In fact, a synonym for sexual immorality in the ancient world was to Corinthianize. Okay? So we're talking about a civilization, let's just say, that's not a whole lot different from, from uh, San Francisco. Let's just pick on the Californians for a while. And this behavior that's, that's being looked overlooked in the local church by this one individual, and he's shacked up with his stepmother, even has the unbelieving Corinthians all upset. See, this is the idea we have to recognize here. It's not that this guy's engaged in behavior that is frowned upon or not accepted by the believers. This is behavior that even the carnal, licentious Corinthians are appalled at. So the unbelievers are looking at this, and from their pagan frame of reference, they're looking at this behavior and saying, that's wrong behavior, that's immoral behavior. And look at those Christians. They're not doing anything about it. They're just letting this guy hang out in church, and nobody says anything to him. See, this is one example of church discipline. This is what's related to the change that we're, that, uh, we're putting into the uh, Constitution that we'll be voting on in a few weeks is to recognize that 
that uh, church discipline doesn't involve the fact that somebody simply slipped into carnality or you catch a couple of ladies in the church gossiping or somebody's a little bit materialistic, but that you've got some somebody who is so enmeshed in the carnality in their life that it's not only obvious to everybody in the church, but it's a, it, it, it's a scandal among the unbelievers as well. And it's something that is publicly known, and if nothing is said in the local church, then it looks as if it is being condoned and accepted by the local church. And it's an extreme situation uh, that, we're, that is being discussed here. And so Paul comes along and he says, now in verse 10, Yet I certainly, he has already told them not to associate with uh, sexually immoral people. That's verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle. This was a previous epistle that's not in the scripture. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And he says, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. In other words, this guy is claiming to be a believer. On the one hand, he talks about the fact that he has his great testimony, Jesus Christ saved him and he's a believer, and then he's engaged in a lifestyle that is even prohibited and breaks the taboos of the unbelievers around him. Uh, and Paul says, I didn't mean to not associate with the sexually immoral people of this world. See, this is what's happening in all those big mega churches. They're separating from the immoral people of the world into their little Christian enclave. Paul says, I didn't mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, then you would need to set up a monastery. This is a great passage to show that monastic living is not the solution to the Christian life or to temptation. But then he says, now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, that is, someone who claims to be a believer who is uh, sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or extortioner, uh, not even to eat with such a person. Now, what do we mean when we get into this list of sins? Does this mean that if somebody commits a sin, they have a, a situation or an instance of sexual immorality, or they are materialistic? This is uh, the idea that many people think of as covetous. Uh, I dare say that within the last uh, week, as some of us have watched commercials on television, we have slipped over that border into covetousness. So does that mean that, up, oh, you're out, you can't come to church anymore? Or an idolater, or a reviler, this is somebody who slanders, somebody who's committed a sin of the tongue of, of gossip or, or slander, or a drunkard, maybe somebody went out to eat and had uh, two glasses of wine and, and they hadn't had much to eat all day, and that second glass took them over the line. Is that what we're talking about here? No, it's not. We're not talking about instances of sin. Because in the context, we're talking about an individual who has a licentious lifestyle that is known in the community. This is somebody whose life is characterized by this on the one hand. And yet he's still showing up in Bible class every week acting as if it's just okay to live like this. So let's take a look at these terms. First of all, what does he mean by keep not keeping company? What's that word mean, keep company? This is the Greek word, synonymignomy. Synonymignomy. 
That is spelled S-U-N, for those of you on tape, S-U-N-A-N-A-M-I-G-N-U-M-I. And the idea of mixing together different elements, uh, for example, as a chemist or pharmacist would mix together different elements to make a medicine, or a cook mixes the ingredients together to uh, in a recipe. So the idea here is a close association. This is not a, 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 a less intimate association, but this is a close association. Someone who is closely identified with this local congregation. Someone who is closely identified with you. This is not talking about someone you uh, is, that's an acquaintance at work, someone who is a relative you see three or four times a year. This is talking about somebody you hang with on a regular basis, someone you are, your life is intermingled with. So the, first of all, we have the word for immorality. This is the Greek word pornos, from which we get our word pornography. And it is not simply someone who is sexually immoral, but that is the, uh, one of the main uses of this word, but it implies on general immorality. Someone who is unethical and unprofessional as a standard practice in their life. Someone who works behind the scenes in manipulation that's unethical and unprofessional. You see this sometimes in office politics. Sadly, you see it frequently in church politics. You get some of the worst people in the world get involved in local churches because they think they can run something. You get folks who are operating on an approbation lust or power lust. Sometimes in some of the some large churches where they have uh, property that is worth a lot, you have people operating on materialism lust, and they're looking for power, they're looking for prestige, and uh, so they work behind the scenes. Uh, quietly manipulating the situation in unethical and unprofessional ways. This is just as much a part of pornos as sexual immorality. The next word that I want to focus on is covetous. What does that mean? Does this mean just a little materialism lust when you see something advertised on television you can't afford and you just wish you could have it? Or you go shopping and you see something that you want and you, and you go into, uh, inordinate debt in order to get it. Well, the word here in the Greek is pleonectes. Pleonectes. Uh, P-L-E-O-N-E-K-T-E-S. Pleonectes. And it's somebody who is obviously operating on power lust and materialism lust. This is an inordinate power lust or materialism lust. Uh, there's a sense in which uh, many people have a legitimate ambition to be in a position of authority, to be in a position of leadership so that they can do well, to uh, be able to control a certain amount of financial resources so that they can properly uh, use them. But when that is focused on just simple self-aggrandizement, that is when you get into problems. And you see, this idea of covetousness can easily apply to a number of pastors, deacons, and church leaders. And trust me, there's a lot of pastors out there who are operating on pleonectes. They are coveting power, they're coveting uh, prestige, they're coveting material gain. That underlies a whole health and wealth gospel movement 
which, of course, we should separate from on doctrinal reasons as well. This is the idea of inordinate ambition and power lust and materialism lust manifested through an end justifies the means methodology. If you ever find yourself rationalizing or justifying somebody's behavior because, well, after all, everything worked out fine. After all, this is really what's best. Then you have just undercut not only your own spiritual life, but you're putting yourself in danger of sliding into reversionism and licentiousness simply because you're setting a habit pattern of thought in your own soul to justify sin. The end never justifies the means. A right thing done in a right way is right. But a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And when you get leadership, whether it's political leadership, whether it is church leadership, whether it's civic leadership, uh, no matter what it may be, whether it's family issues, when you get somebody who thinks that the end results are okay, uh, even though things weren't done right, in other words, a right thing is done in a wrong way, and they decide to justify it, they are in serious danger. They are in carnality. And when you see someone who, where this characterizes their ministry, and unfortunately, when you see this in politics, when you see this in ministries, when you see this in business, people cover up. I mean, we're smart, aren't we? You know how to camouflage your sin nature. Well, they know how to camouflage their sin nature. And it's amazing how many times people get caught up in this and, and some people find out about it and everybody else is just hoodwinked and willing to be hoodwinked because they just don't want to face up to the fact that they need to hold everybody, including themselves, to a high standard. And we live in a world where we don't want to hold ourselves to a high standard anymore. This is part of cosmic thinking. So we, we don't want to hold anybody else to a high standard because, well, that may mean I have to be held to a high standard. So the Bible says we're to separate from people who violate business, ministry, or professional ethics in order to achieve their goal. If this is their SOP, then we're not to be involved with them whatsoever. And then we have the next word, or an idolater. Well, that is just somebody who is involved either in physical idolatry, of worshiping a wood, metal, or stone idol, or, of course, Colossians speaks of greed as being idolatry. So this would be somebody who's into uh, inordinate materialism or into materialism lust. Or a reviler. A reviler. This is somebody who's involved in mental attitude sins. or I mean, excuse me, sins of the tongue. They're constantly slandering, constantly gossiping, constantly running down uh, somebody. We're to separate from them. Or a drunkard. This is somebody who's not, they're not an alcoholic. They're a drunk. They've got a problem with alcohol, and because of that, it and their that involvement can cause us to sin and as a distraction in our own life. Or an extortioner, as it's translated in the King James, this is the word harpax, uh, a r p a x with a rough breathing mark, harpax. It has the idea of being rapacious or ravenous. This is a swindler, someone who is into criminality financial criminality in order to uh, increase their, uh, th- their financial or material possessions. 
Now, the problem that uh, what underlies all this and these mandates is that there's a real trend in the sin nature towards licentiousness. And we have a real tendency to just justify and overlook and wink at sin because, after all, we're all sinners. We're saved by grace. God deals with us in grace. After all, all I have to do is confess sin and God forgives me. He forgives us, but he doesn't remove the consequences. There are consequences to carnal, sinful action, folks. And when you overlook, rationalize, or justify consequences to people's sinful actions, I'm not talking about individual sins. Remember the context. We're dealing with something that is a lifestyle pattern that's overt. Sometimes you don't. nobody else knows about it, but you know about it. In that case, you just keep it private. You make your decision, and you move on. But don't confuse rationaliz- don't confuse grace orientation with this kind of rationalization. Don't think that, well, I'm just being grace-oriented towards this person. So it, they may be involved in some behavior that's not right, but, but after all, it hasn't been real harmful. They're, they still look at how much good they do with what their company produces. Uh, look at all of this. Now, what you've just done is set a habit pattern in your own thinking that will set up a landmine in your thinking uh, that will come back and haunt you uh, spiritually. We have to separate from these. So Paul says, I've written you not to keep company. Don't keep a close fellowship. This, again, this isn't talking about somebody who is um, uh, someone you meet occasionally or a family member you see three or four times a year. This is somebody you're involved with at an intimate level on a regular basis. Somebody you're going to go home and, as we say down south, you're going to eat fried chicken with on Sunday. You're not going to eat fried chicken with them anymore. Point number five. We're to separate from believers who reject sound doctrine. Separate from believers who reject sound doctrine. And if there's anything that can destroy our own spiritual life is when we associate with people who... uh, don't hold the sound doctrine, and they start saying, well, you know, there are a lot of different views in evangelicalism. There are folks who believe this, and there are folks who believe that, and there are folks who believe... We can all just get along, and we don't have to draw these doctrinal distinctions. Well, there's an embedded blasphemy there, and that's the idea that God doesn't communicate clearly enough for us to take strong positions on doctrine. Now, my position on a doctrine may be wrong, but by gosh, I think God communicated something, and he communicated it clearly. When you get in with these wishy-washy people, they don't think God really communicated things clearly. So you can think it means this, and I think it means that, and somebody else thinks it means something else. We can just all put our arms together, and let's just, let just emote on our common experience that Jesus loves us. And then we'll all go home and feel, be happy we went to church this morning. This is not the biblical view. Second Thessalonians 3.6 But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice it's a mandate, this isn't an option, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now this isn't tradition for tradition's sake. This is the apostolic doctrine. This is what's in the Scripture. And this is somebody who doesn't walk according to the tradition which he received from the apostles. So if somebody is indifferent to doctrine or their exposure to doctrine is sporadic or they're just living their life, don't get, don't keep them close to you because, uh, eventually that tends to, uh, rub off on us. 
And then Paul says in verse 14 and 15 of 1 Thessalonians, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy. See, they're, they're not enemies. They're brothers in Christ. They're fellow members of the royal family of God. They are not the enemy. Don't make them the enemy. But admonish him as a brother. That means if you have a sibling, you have some idea of how you may straighten someone out. This is where I have limited frame of reference since I'm an only child. Admonish him as a brother. Your goal is restoration. Your goal is not exclusion. But if there is no response, then eventually you're just going to have to uh, uh, learn to go separate ways. Sixth principle. We're to separate from believers who make their own internal lust patterns the motivation for their life. Separate from believers who make their own internal lust patterns the motivation for their life. This is seen in Romans 16, 17, and 18. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. These are folks who are always going around stirring up trouble. We don't have anybody like that at PCBC, thankfully. But I did in the first church I was in. And unfortunately, you know, in many churches, there's the formal power structure that's indicated by the pastor and the deacons. Then there's the informal power structure. And these people had been around since uh, the beginning of time. And so, uh, uh, and they had uh, sons and daughters in the church, and they were part of the informal power structure. And they were constantly, and they had a pattern of 20 years of this, causing division and offenses. And they should have been removed from that congregation uh, years before. So uh, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn. So this is doctrinally based issues. People who are going around challenging dispensationalism, challenging free grace gospel, challenging uh, pre-trib rapture. Contrary to the doctrine you learned, avoid them. Now you may know somebody that doesn't hold those positions, but it's not an issue, it's not a divisive issue. There's a difference. Somebody's going around with that, this kind of a, uh, they think they figured out who wrote Hebrews and they're going to make everybody else agree with them. Romans 16, 18 says, For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly. Here's the Greek word koilea, which means womb or belly. And, it ha- and here it's used metaphorically to stand for those internal lusts of their sin nature. They are serving their own lust patterns, their own power lust, their own approbation lust, their own materialism lust. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. And this happens, you can see this with so many pastors and uh, church leaders. I've had numerous examples. You can see this. The extremes are on television, but trust me, you see it in a lot of different uh, local churches where you have somebody who's very poised, very socially adept, and what's going on behind the scenes is not seen by uh, 99.9% of the people. And yet a few people see it, and what's happening is this person's a pastor simply because they're driven by their own lust, and they are deceiving uh, many people. 
Then the seventh point is separation. Separation from the immoral social scene, where your norms and standards are gradually eroded through peer pressure. This is really important for young people. You have to watch out. I haven't known a teenager yet who admitted to succumbing to peer pressure, and all of them are. And we all were when we were teens to one degree or another. And we need to separate from that. Um, Peter states this in 1 Peter 4.4, 4, In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. See, this is when your people at school, uh, people uh, in your social group start talking behind your back and say, well, you know, they've just become religious. They've just gotten into all this Jesus stuff. And, uh, and so they start running you down behind your back. So we are to separate from them. Proverbs 1, we don't have time to go through it tonight. Proverbs 1, 10 through 19 is a warning uh, about this. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And the idea there is good, positive habits of the spiritual life. And we have to watch who we're associated with. Uh, point number 8. We need to uh, separate from unbelievers to avoid having our doctrine compromised. Second uh, Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? This involves some kinds of business partnerships, not necessarily all. It certainly involves marriage, dating, uh, intimate social life. Separate from unbelievers because their influence can affect our own doctrine. And point number eight, we need to separate from believers who are enmeshed in religious modes of operation and apostasy. Second Corinthians six seventeen says we're to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Second Timothy three five that there are those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. From such people turn away. So these, this is the doctrine of separation. It was important for Abram to be separate from the culture of Ur the Chaldees, from the paganism, the cosmic thinking, so that he could advance spiritually. This is why God called him to go out. And the response, Abram's response was that by faith, this is... Uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 8, you find it again. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he, which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. See, when God calls you and calls me, we may not always know where the Lord's taking us in our spiritual life and in our Christian service, but we are to recognize that we're living our life in terms of an eternal destiny and that we have to be prepared for that destiny. And this means that there has to be a separation in this life uh, from in what may in many cases be our comfort zone. I think the sin nature is a great comfort zone sometimes, but we have to separate from that. We'll get back to looking at the specifics of the Abrahamic covenant next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, study this important doctrine of separation. We pray that you would challenge us, 
that those who hear this will have the objectivity to listen to the message and apply it consistently in their own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.